Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com. In this episode, I speak with Zaretta Hammond, who is the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain and is a passionate educator focusing on the word wealth and language skills that students bring to our classrooms in order to help them become better readers, writers, and communicators. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today we speak with Zaretta Hammond, who is the author of Culturally Responsive Teaching in the Brain. Uh, She is passionate about the intersectionality of equity, literacy, and culturally responsive teaching as a way to help Schools and districts close opportunity and learning gaps for underserved students. She's a native San Franciscan, and we'll find out more about her path through education. Welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you. I'm really looking forward to hearing about the ways that um, you enact writing instruction and, and help others enact writing instruction. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about your path uh, in education. How have you arrived to where you are today? Yeah, it has been a very interesting path. And I say to a lot of, you know, educators that I talk with that my story is very much the story a lot of, of a lot of their low-income students. Um, I grew up in San Francisco, California. My grandparents came out to San Francisco in 1940, the last wave of the Black migration out of the Deep South. And I went to public schools in uh, the area. My mother was a teen parent. She had three children by the time she was 22. And what really shaped me in terms of, you know, a path, and I really didn't even know it at the time, was the fact that when they started in the 70s with uh, the first welfare to work programs, she got a position as a library technician with the San Francisco Public Library. So my after school program was to come to her branch, library branch, She would find a table in the children's section and she'd pile it full of books. And she says, when you hit the table, it's time to go. And that was really instructive. I read all the books, all different types of books, was really just immersed in words and language and just fed my imagination as well as kind of my understanding of how words work. I remember the day I asked her if I could go over to the adult section and she had a little side eye like, "Mm, I know it's over there. Right. But she said, yes, because I'd read everything in the children's section and I discovered mythology and Joseph Campbell and astronomy and oh my goodness. It just like, oh my goodness. Um, I found myself reading the dictionary. I fell in love with words. So it just kind of continued. That then became an interest in equity because I ended up at the University of California, Berkeley as a writing tutor Mm -hmm. and started to see kind of this disparity between who was being, you know, invited into the writing center because they were not performing well in that area. And UC Berkeley is really unique because it asks all students to pass what they call subject A, expository writing. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you have a 4.0, if you do not pass this in three tries, they ask you to leave. 
And so what we started to see is, again, a type of gap along racial and linguistic lines, right? Our, our immigrant students, students for whom English was not their first language, um, low-income students, they were struggling with the writing portion. So I started to see that gap and started to do my own interrogation and use, starting to use my own techniques because I was then invited to be a writing tutor. And it was to the point where I was having success with certain groups of students and they asked me to start training in the way in which I was starting to, why are you having success when other people weren't having success in moving the writing performance of particular students of color forward? And it was the first time that I started to cogently articulate this idea of culturally responsive practice, that it wasn't that you're doing anything unique, it's you were leveraging the ways that students were coming in, understanding, learning, processing. So uh, again, it wasn't that I was teaching culturally responsive practice. It was I was teaching reading using the technology of culturally responsive practice. So that's kind of the you know, route. And then I, it took me 11 years to get my undergraduate degree <laughs> because, you know, coming, having to do it on my own. Uh, so that was really interesting. So that, that's definitely been a part of my journey and fueled my interest in equity. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit more. You just said, and I'll try to paraphrase, and I may even get it wrong. You know, you're not teaching culturally responsive practice. You were teaching with a culturally responsive practice as you taught reading or as you taught writing. Did I Absolutely. kind of capture that? Tell us more about that, because even that subtle little shift seems like that's a, that one word makes a big difference. And I'm curious. It really does, because right now people are calling any old thing culturally responsive. And there is a notion that I'm teaching and then I'm teaching culturally responsively, or I'm teaching culturally responsive. And for a lot of educators, it's just being packaged as a bucket of strategies. And most of those strategies are relegated to engagement. Dr. Gloria Latson-Billings, Dr. Asa Hilliard, many of the foremothers, forefathers of culturally responsive teaching as kind of a, a, a concept, right? It has been going on for a long time, but they were able to synthesize it so it could be communicated to others, really put instruction at the center, the academic capacity building of students, not entertainment, not edutainment, not engagement. But right now, there's a lot of conflation and confusion with multiculturalism. So there is this notion that if I just teach you something about, you know, diverse authors that have done well, it would make you feel proud enough that you would actually pay attention. So the theory of change around what people currently are calling culturally responsive teaching is really flawed. Mm. So what originally culturally responsive teaching is about is building students' capacity, leveraging their current schema, right? Culture is the software to our brain's hardware. It's how we organize information. It's how we process information. And too often it gets relegated to some kind of, you know, entertainment trick, right? Oh, it's always call and response. But what does that have to do with instruction, right? That's a gimmick. And unfortunately, I see this with a lot of white educators who don't have a lot of interaction across racial and linguistic lines and ethnic communities. So again, their interpretation gets really oversimplified. And again, it gets relegated to the entertainment 
engagement bucket, if you will. So when I use it for writing, it's I leverage, for example, I'll give you a really concrete example. In my classroom, I was a writing teacher when I was in the classroom writing was composition. They called it back then. I did not teach ELA with a little writing sprinkled on. My job was to make sure you were a proficient expository writing. That's all I taught when you were in my class. So I had from ninth graders all the way to 12th graders, helping them improve. And I did uh, uh, time at, at the community college level as well, helping students who at that point were not successful in, in high school and in order to progress through their general education courses had to become better writers. So they got me. Um, and the thing I did was to say, okay, there is one element of collectivist practice we know, and that is that we have distributed expertise. A lot of times this is um, misunderstood as, oh, those kids like to work in groups all the time. Well, that's not true. You can have a collectivist mindset and practice even as an independent individual learner, right? But what it means is when I don't know, rather than just be in my confusion, I get the opportunity to turn to my neighbor and say, what do you think, right? It's like getting on the phone and getting, tapping into this vast uh, uh, network of knowledge that you have there and that there's no shame in that, that that's your first brain's first response is, oh, who do I know that would know this that could help me understand it? Right, we see this uh, uh, Yuri Treisman back in the day who did a lot of work around study habits when he looked at Korean, Asian American students. That's what they were doing. You see it in law school happening, but we were not leveraging that kind of collectivist practice in um, the classrooms that were particularly filled with black and brown kids. So the idea of distributed expertise, I leveraged that as peer editing. Because when I would conference with my students, they could not see that run-on sentence. And no amount of red ink on that page <laughs> could get them to see it. And I started to realize, kind of like a personal trainer, oh, the personal trainer has to get you to actually do the push-up correctly. They can't get on the floor and do the push-up for you. So I had to start to think about how do I leverage that? So I instituted peer editing, meaning we all learned how to be a better uh, editor, look into someone else's paper, give them feedback on it. And something very miraculous happened. I was conferencing with a student and he looked and he says, you know, I started to notice all these comma splices in my paper. <laughs> kind of like, hallelujah. And the only reason he started to notice them is because he learned how to give that feedback to a peer. Right? So this idea is not just, oh, get everybody in the group. But the idea is to hone the expertise of the group so that in order to be a teacher, you have to actually get better. So this is kind of the reciprocal teaching piece, but we did it with editing. So that was really successful. Again, leveraging a principle. There are about six principles of uh, collectivist learning, collectivism and learning, I call them. I'm working on my second book and I'm going to integrate those into that. So people really start to understand because what became very clear to me as I began to talk about culturally responsive practices, people had no concept of what collectivism is. So because it sounds like collaboration, oh, that must mean more group work. It's just 
level, or they just think it's about relationships. So there's a lot of ways in, in which, because they don't center it around instruction, cannot bring it into the classroom as a part of a routine, um, ongoing way of learning. Instead, it just becomes kind of a one-off kind of, oh, we're going to do a culturally responsive activity. Right. Well, this is making me think of so many different ways that you're talking about kind of structural parts of schooling and the ways that school days and curriculum and teachers work schedules and the ways in which they think about their job, as well as the students in front of them, all of that. And then it's these very tiny and yet very important instructional moves that have to happen Absolutely. on a minute to minute basis. Absolutely. How do you help a teacher begin to unpack that? What are the types of questions yeah. that you might go into a conversation with a teacher who's trying to teach writing in a culturally responsive uh, manner and, and using some of these strategies and such as collectivist learning and understanding those principles? What are those conversations? So with it first starts with, we don't call them strategies. I don't use that S word. Okay. That mindset reduces it. Versus what you just said is, what's my instructional decision-making? What do I know about their schema? Where do I put this information so it becomes sticky? When we call it strategy, it lives outside of us. And then it may as well just be magic. Because I don't have to change. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to pay attention. I just have to do that strategy. And then they ask, well, the student isn't learning it. So instead, the instructional move is around instructional decision-making. The instructional move is, how do I actually use metaphor, illustration, or something to make this sticky? If it's writing, right, how do I get the student to see? So I call this the chewing part. How do I get students to process the information in a way that they internalize? This is how you use a comma. Let's just use comma, because a lot of kids, like in writing, they have a challenge with commas. Um, but that's sentence level work, right? Then there is cohesiveness. How do I make good transitions so this idea couples to that? So you could go to something like six traits of writing and break those down and say, how do I get the student to internalize this principle of writing so that when they are looking at their writing, they understand they need to be paying attention to that. So you have a couple of pieces that have to happen. You know, long story short, the starting place is the teacher actually has to see how he or she is teaching writing. Because a lot of times we just talk about the student as almost broken. Like I'm doing this thing, but they're not getting it. So what I tell them is that you're either going to have to use audio tape or videotape to actually just see where is the breakdown? What are your instructional moves? When that student presents confusion to you, what do you do? How do you help him out of his confusion? Where is the productive struggle? Meaning the students get to grapple, take it apart. A lot of times I see, and this is particularly true with writing workshop, that they think what's culturally responsive is getting them to do writing workshop. But there's no one ever talking to the student about their writing. Mm -hmm. How do you help students have an instructional conversation about their writing and do that in engaging ways? You can use a jigsaw. You can use an existing piece of writing, an exemplar not from a student in the class because you don't want to put that student on the spot. But the teacher should be collecting this and students should be having a conversation about what is the writer doing, right? Why does this work? 
Why does this not work? Where is it okay to break the rules? Why do I see the student doing this? And this is usually, I think students fourth grade and on are really equipped to do that. But we don't set classrooms up like that. So students aren't having the kind of conversations that build knowledge about what good writing is. Instead, the, when you use the words culturally responsive, there's a default to start to say, oh, if I just get more diverse writers in there, if I just get more diverse mentor text. Well, here's a reality. That's not going to teach you how to make your transitions better. It's, and for English learners, they're, you know, Lily Wong Fillmore, a long time ago, as late as early as the 80s, was talking about sentence complexity as the key thing, right? Subject, verb, agreement. But now let's start adding some phrases and clauses. Teachers aren't talking about phrases and clauses. Right. We're just this whole, if you just write, you're going to get, that's ridiculous. And the more teachers do that, the more they're growing their own achievement gaps. Because the students whose parents can afford to send them to a writing coach or a writing camp are going to say, my students' writing is not going to put them on the path to college, and they're going to make sure their kids get it. For the students that are school dependent, dependent on school to teach them the thing they need, those students are stuck with that poor example of a writing workshop that somebody got out of a box because somebody bought the latest <laughs> education publishers that we go rename nameless, right? To, they, they bought the package. You're not going to find good writing instruction in a binder. And so this is the thing that I see, right? So we confuse what the topic is or the infusion in the content with that's what makes it culturally responsive versus the ways in which you're engaging students in structured ways to have the right conversations about what makes writing good. One of the writers, uh, uh, writing instructors I'm really, really excited about these days is uh, Goldie Muhammad. And that's Goldie spelled G-H-O-L-D-I-E, Muhammad. She really talks about helping African-American girls use rhetoric, literary tradition as a way into thinking about form to encourage proficiency. So this is not an either or, because this is what I see in writing. Either we're letting kids, we, kids, we want kids to have voice. And so they're just writing stream of consciousness with no form, or we go all the way to the other side and it's all form and no passion, no rhetoric, no persuasion. And what she's done is to bring those two together, to leverage their literary tradition and this comes out of the work of um, Dr. Alfred Tatum, where he talks about, right, the textual lineage of African-American students. Same as for First Nation students, same for Latinx students, same for Alaskan Native students. There is a textual lineage. There's a way in which particularly white educators act like these students have no literacy, no literary background. And it's not being leveraged and then shape to say, if I can give you these tools of rhetoric, right? When I was at the University of California, Berkeley, the intersectionality between kind of expository writing and, and rhetoric, right? I was always fascinated because there was a rhetoric department. It's like, aren't they just writing over there? What are they doing? But they were using words to persuade. They were using words to tap emotions. And I'm like, how do you do that? I started to bring that into my teaching, right? It's like, what are the leverage points? 
how do you mix how you talk right now, how you think right now with the traditional rhetorical devices so as to have more impact in your writing? How do you know the rules so you can break the rules? Right? So that wasn't this either or that I see. I think we do our kids a disservice when we think, well, I just let you write anywhere, anyway and say anything with no attention to spelling, sentence formation, punctuation. I just, and so what's going to happen is they are not going to be college ready. College, you know, the saying is math gets you into college, writing keeps you there. Mm. Right? Because every class requires you to write papers. This is one of the biggest shocks for students. And they'll always say, you know, don't, doesn't my other instructor know I have a paper? I'm like, you might have three, four, five papers. So you have to have the process of writing so internalized that now you're just engaging the ideas of the writer. You're not struggling to say, oh, is this going to be you know, grammatically correct or, you know, so I encourage teachers to go all the way back to diagramming sentences. Listen, diagramming sentences can be fun. (laughs) And there are some new folks coming out to revitalize that with kind of a a real, it can be interactive. Mm -hmm. It can spur conversation, right? Vygotsky talked about social cultural learning theory, which is rooted in a collectivist practice. How do we talk about a thing? Not just talk, not just turn and talk. Lord, we need to stop that. Turn and talk to your neighbor. If we put a boom mic in in the midst of what kids are talking about when you say that, you would be sorely disappointed, right? right? But we think just because we see their, their lips moving, that their brains are building knowledge or building understanding. And what we have to do is we have to pay a little more attention to that building of understanding. And provide them with a, uh, an effective prompt or scaffold to lead into that conversation, I would imagine. You know, what well, is it you want them to talk about? Well, give them something intellectually challenging and useful. But what I would also say is then this is where the instructional conversation, in addition to giving them something interesting to talk about, giving, give them something to grapple with. Mm-hmm. So let's look at the, how this writer actually structured this. Can you find out? And now have every individual student say, this is where I see these devices in this paper. Now let's, pay, let, let's talk about that. I'm going to get with my partner and talk about it. Now, we as a pair are going to get with another pair to say, where are we the same? Where are we? Oh, what made you think that? Now we're having an intellectual conversation because a prompt, a writing prompt by itself does not lead to intellectual conversation. So we don't want to get those twisted. And that's what happens a lot. And what happens when you start to look at low-income kids and the blacker and the browner they are, the more low-level the prompt is, the more low-level the opportunity to actually have that kind of robust intellectual conversation. He's using this device. I see him using it here. Well, I would have to know what that device is. We would have had to have learned that. We would have had to try and play that. You can use someone else's words. Let's see if we can make our own version of this, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which we are not helping students like a personal trainer start with this structure and then move to actually be able to do it according to your own capacity. Oh, All you got to do, that. yeah, yeah. It, it's a different nuance than just give them a good writing prompt. Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a writable podcast. 
Discover more episodes and subscribe on your favorite streaming platforms. Or check out filmed episodes on YouTube. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.